0: Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Matthew Barzen and host Michael Lerner.
1: Matthew Barzon, welcome to the new school at Commonweal. Michael, thanks for having me. Matthew, it is such a deep joy to have this conversation with you, um, We'll be talking about your new book, "The Power of Giving Away Power," which uh, the subtitle "How the Best Leaders Learn to Let Go." But we'll also be talking about your life uh, and in conversation, real conversation, because I find your book so important to me personally. I'm—I mean, I read all the time. I imagine you read all the time. Yeah. I—I uh, I don't know what I'm. I must read or half read a couple of hundred books a year. So that's what I do. I I read. Mm. And so um, I know books. This is an extraordinary book.
2: Oh, Michael, I cannot tell you how good that feels coming from you.
1: No, it's an extraordinary book. I uh, am literally going to be giving copies to a whole set of my friends and colleagues because I want them to understand from within um what is to me uh, an exposition of my whole philosophy of collaborative uh leadership uh, what my friend and colleague oren Slosberg, who's my successor at commonweal as executive director uh but he calls it intergenerational leadership in our case mm-hmm. uh, uh, because uh, he di- he didn't want to succeed me he wanted to work with me and have all of us participate, and um, yeah. and it's our whole model of work at Commonweal um, that I will get into. But your book created a framework for me to reflect on how we work, mm. how we've worked for forty-five years, and what we've learned about that. So I'm just thrilled.
2: Oh well, that makes two of us.
1: Yeah, and hopefully uh, more. And also to say it, um, your grandmother, Eleanor Winthrop, was a friend of my mother's and a friend of mine. Uh, we uh, worked together on mind, body, health issues. Your mother, Sarita Winthrop, uh, is a, a wonderful friend of mine. Uh, your um, your grandfather, uh, Jacques Barzang, um is one of the most extraordinary uh, public intellectuals of our time with his uh, extraordinary studies at Columbia of uh, uh, cultural and intellectual history. So as someone who loves these kinds of personal connections, um, I've just been so looking forward to that. So enough- Oh, excellent, excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you, thank you. (laughs) So let's turn to the book. Um, You write, in the book that a colleague of yours said that while op-eds and and articles could have many ideas, a book should have only one idea. What is the one idea of the power of giving away power?
2: Oh, Michael, that's tough. That colleague is James Harding, who used to run the BBC, a wonderful uh, contemporary of mine, English uh, guy. Uh, it was wise advice. It was hard advice. Um, okay, let me try this. I'm, I'm, I'm cheating here for a second. I am going to give one idea in a moment because it is very much about one idea. But I was listening the other day to a wonderful conversation that you had with um, Angelus Arian. Oh, yes. Okay. So I'm reading this. I'm listening. I'm mostly, I'm sort of half watching. This was when we could, you could meet in person. So I'm like half listening, half watching. And she was so wonderful to look at. So I get really excited by this discussion. And so I go online. I was like, well, I'm going to ask Michael to introduce me to her. And then of course I learned that she died, I think within a year or maybe even less after you had that.
1: I, I did the last serious conversation.
2: Oh my goodness. Okay. So then I am going out and buying every book that, that she wrote. And in the process of buying the book, I discovered this quotation, which had I read it earlier, I would have certainly put it in my book. And, and here it is. The soul never thinks without an image. And Aristotle evidently, and I hope it's true that he said it or wrote it. Um, and that was, I think, for her book about shapes. And I love that someone else wrote a book about shapes, because in some ways, the one idea of this book is I set up the contrast between the pyramid mindset, and that is the world of up and down and in and out and ranking and rating and sifting and sorting. It's the world of top down, but as we'll get into later, it's also the world of bottom up, same shape. And that, that pyramid mindset does provide a kind of stability and a kind of order. That can be very oppressive but it also can be sort of comforting in the sense that order and stability can be comfort comforting and my book is really about that if we're able to escape the pyramid mindset which i think has become sort of the default setting um not just out there in the world but in there within us that the the alternative isn't just chaos and everyone for herself or himself no there's another kind of stability and another kind of order uh, and both these images happen to be on the back of a US dollar bill. Um, so I contrast the pyramid mindset with what I call the constellation mindset, taken from the front of the US seal above the eagle's head, right above where it says E Pluribus Unum from many one, is what they called the radiant constellation. Initially, 13 asymmetrical stars with beams radiate, radiating out behind it. And that image of a constellation is a way we can choose to think of ourselves and those around us. Namely, that you are a star, you are distinctly yourself, you bring your truth, your full self to every encounter, and you look at everyone around you like a star, and you can make connections between people, between stars if you stick with this, um, to make something much more useful and more powerful than you ever could alone. And it's a different kind of order and a different kind of stability than the pyramid, and I think much more productive. I think it is at any scale. As a country, it was our best idea. Um, it is the symbol of interdependence. How can you achieve unity without uniformity? How can you get the best of diversity without succumbing to division? That gives us an image to do that with. And I find that image really helpful. Um, and the fact that Aristotle, through you, through arians that I learned that phrase is, is kind of wonderful because i do think we have these images in our head and how depressing would it be if we thought that we were supposed to be from many bricks one pyramid i mean that is a way of looking at the world i find that not a very useful one and in that world you either fit in or you're left out but if you think from many stars one constellation and this to me is the most important part and i'll stop here. In a constellation mindset, you can stand out and fit in at the exact same time. And I think that's what we all need and what we all want.
1: We will talk about your extraordinary history in just a little bit, but how long would you say it took you in the course of your life to evolve what has become, I would say, a full fledged philosophy of life and of? collaborative work with
2: others. You know, in the journey that led to this book, I wrote sort of two two other books along the way that aren't published. One day they might, but I had to sort of get through all that to get to where I got in this book. And one of them, uh, one of those efforts was sort of more of a chronological, I, I set out never to write a memoir but it ended up kind of being memoir um, which was fine and healthy, I think, and helpful, but not really what I, – I, I don't think that would have helped get the this core idea out there. It would have been – it's hard in that to sort of – I don't know. It just felt like it was sort of brags and humble brags and just, ugh, I didn't like – I mean, I liked elements of it, but I don't think it, it ended up working as well as I would have liked. So I tried to sort of pinpoint – I can't really pinpoint when that happened. Certainly, I remember when I started writing what turned into this book, I just called it the pyramid and the and I didn't have another word for it at the time. And I tried pyramid of the snowflake and I didn't want it to be, Michael, one of those, even though I love these books. Do you know the this and the that books? Anne-Marie Slaughter, who's writing uh, and thinking I adore, um, wrote the chessboard and the web and Niall Ferguson wrote The Square and The Tower, you know, the, the the this and the that, The Hedgehog and the Fox, that kind of thing. But those books, which I enjoy, tend to kind of set it up as like an analytical book. And I didn't want it to be just analytical. I wanted it to be slightly more, I don't even know what, what the right word is, but sort of not just at a distance, not arm's length. Like, no, 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 I think this is something you should live and put into practice. I certainly am trying to. Um, so it was the pyramid and the snowflake for a while. It was the pyramid and the fuzzball, which was just a nonsense image that would have just a placeholder. And snowflake had become kind of a charged image in our political culture. Um, and, but it is fractal. Maybe we'll get into this. I mean, snowflakes are wonderful, mysterious things. Um, and then I discover uh, the way life works that you am know, looking at a dollar bill and I'm like, what is that thing? It looks kind of like a fuzzball. And it's on the front, if you have a passport and you're American, it's, it's more prominent on a passport. And I've just seen it and looked through it thousands of times. Um, and then I start on Wikipedia and I love Wikipedia. I read it in the book, I start this, where did this come from? And then I discover the story that it took longer to design the logo than it did to win the war. Um, so I can't pinpoint the moment. And, and if I had to, I think it was mostly along the way seeing how, I don't know, when I learned in science, you know, when we were taught in the, it might be the second law, first law of thermodynamics, the conservation of energy. And that may be true in closed systems and science, but I just knew wherever people are gathered, that is certainly not true because I have been witness to, as we all have, and I just sort of, maybe I'm overly sensitive to where energy or power is to have kindled and created, or whether it is smothered and killed. And this happens all day long, and I am increasingly in my life aware of when it's being smothered and when it's being kindled. Yeah. If that makes sense. May,
1: uh, at some point, you showed a graph to Alain de Botton, the remarkable philosopher. And uh, he said to you, how long do you now expect to work on it? I think you said six months. And he, he said something like, it's going to take you three years. And he was right almost to the day. But the point is, you already had a draft. How long had you been working on the draft when he told you it would be another three years?
2: Oh, I mean, I was two years, almost two and a half, or, you know, I guess two years into it and feeling pretty confident. Right. Um, and I think I even said three months. And he was so lovely. And he's like, OK, sure. I mean, by all means, you could get, you know, the Word document in good enough shape. Um, and there are enough pages, but, and he added, I don't think I put this in the acknowledgements, but he said, he he's looking at the sort of memoir version. Yeah. So it really went through, the reason it took three more years is it became a totally different book. And he's like, I think you should write a book about lost American values.
1: Mm.
2: Now that is not what my publisher calls this book. It's called the leadership book. And I understand why the, the team that published it are smarter about book publishing than I am by by a lot. But I rebelled, we, before we went on, we were talking about these words are so loaded, you know, management. Certainly, it's not going to be a management book. I mean, that's just a word I won't use. But leadership, I mean, I like, I mean, it's an important concept. I was like, I don't think that's really what it is. But I mean, a book on lost American values, which is a part of what this book is about, is how Alain framed it which gave me motivation to take it in a new direction. So I'm very grateful to him for that.
1: After you, uh, you were, you were uh, born in New York City, like me, you grew up in Lincoln, Massachusetts. Uh, you got your uh, degree in history and literature from Harvard in 1993. You joined an internet startup, CNET, uh, which you talked about in the book. And uh, in The Audacity to Win, author and political strategist, David Plouffe, how do you say his last name, Plouffe? It's, it's Pluff, like the right stuff. Pluff, okay. David Pluff described your grassroots campaign uh, idea of citizen fundraisers as uh, critical to um, uh, Obama's connection with supporters. But I've read elsewhere I've, that other people really uh, give you Considerable credit uh, for helping Obama uh, go uh, win in Iowa and then against immense odds uh, of uh, Hillary Clinton's well-entrenched candidacy because of the grassroots uh, volunteer and fundraising model end up uh, raising more than Hillary did and really transforming um, a lot about, um, about political organizing and, uh, fundraising process. Is that fair?
2: Well, I mean, it's nice of you. Uh, and it was what David says in his book is true. And I think fair, but I'm always quick to point out, I mean, the, the, I contributed a piece, a small piece of it, um, that I think is important, but it is small and, I think small things are important because small things repeated and repeated can lead to something big and complicated like a snowflake or broccoli or cities like New York City or, you know what I mean? So it's that sort of fractal thing, which is kind of geeky, but maybe we'll get into that. So small patterns in town, if they're healthy ones, repeated and repeated can lead to something big. So the insight, low-dollar fundraising wasn't new and it wasn't something I contributed I think the, the insight that I came up with with a, two wonderful women in Louisville, Kentucky, where I'm speaking to you from now, which is my adopted home city, um, what, what we did and just proved was that you should, we should treat fundraising like we treat field organizing, which is it would be crazy to wait until the last few months of a presidential campaign to start organizing introducing yourself to people trying to find I mean no one would do that um you start really early and it's all about making meaningful human connections with people in small teams and and doing that and so the obama team and and i talk about a woman named buffy and a guy named jeremy and lots who aren't named in the book but just remarkable people known and unknown who did this amazing field organizing work and that was not my world but i saw it and i saw how powerful it was and how much energy was created in that moment. And I said, well, we should just do, I mean, political fundraising can be pretty awful and certainly gets a well-earned bad reputation um, on both political parties. But I was like, it doesn't need to be that way. I mean, my goodness, 99% of I was living in Kentucky, you know, don't give to either political campaign back then. I mean, it's a very small slice. Like, why don't we just approach fundraising like field organizing and ask everyone? and do it in a systematic way and do it really early and not go ask for $2000 which 99% of people couldn't afford um in their wildest dreams and just do $20 but build community and relationships in the process of it and that's the piece that I think I helped contribute to
1: mm-hmm. um and then uh uh Obama named you ambassador to uh, Sweden after the um after he won, um, and after that, he asked you to be the uh, finance chair for his reelection campaign, and then uh, asked you to serve as ambassador to the United Kingdom. So there's a lot there, but in the book, you describe how you took these initial insights about uh, uh, about sort of constellations and so on and and really broke the mold of how to do how to be an ambassador you know in sweden took uh took the roadshow of the embassy out to small cities around sweden in uh england uh started uh, going to many many schools talking to um uh, the children in schools about what they liked and didn't like about the United States and so forth. So uh, what I see happening, as you describe it in the book, is that these earlier thoughts, first at CNET about how the Internet was going to work, then um, with the Obama campaign about uh, uh, you know volunteer engagement and fundraising, Then in Sweden, uh, taking this roadshow out from the embassy into the countryside and starting a clean energy campaign with Swedes and Americans. And then in the UK with um, this outreach to young people uh, and transforming how the embassy itself worked in terms of getting people to talk to each other and breaking the mold. So, again, mm. I'm trying to encapsulate what I gathered. Am I doing a fair job?
2: Yes, thank you. Keep going. <laughs> no, oh. it's lovely to hear it. Summer. I mean, you you give it in your, you know, in the act of writing a book sort of gives things sort of more coherence in right. retrospect than they certainly feel in the moment. And your wonderful summing up, as you just did, makes it sort of hold together. Um in a way that I think is true and helpful. It just didn't feel that way at the time. And it's funny, you said break the mold. And I do think that, and it, it wasn't sort of done in the spirit of iconoclastic no. breaking. It felt to me like smashing, but it did feel like um, escaping the pyramid, escaping the energy destroying mindset of like i talked about earlier had become the default setting of so many organizations even ones i was part of i mean cnet started off as a dot-com full of energy from people we never knew volunteering product reviews and all this wonderful stuff and then we turned into a pyramid the obama campaign was unbelievably unleashed magical connections and energy from volunteers as you talked about and then the re-election which i was so proud to be a part of and i'm so glad we won was a pyramid i mean it was it was not a joy producing endeavor it was meaningful but it was kind of working backwards from a set destination um and didn't create a lot of new energy and i think the state department at its i mean the 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 role of diplomacy the state department at its best is a beautiful constellation Um, but often we just keep reverting to this pyramid and how we treat ourselves and others. And so wanting to get out of that shape, which, um, which in many cases revolves getting out of buildings because I don't know if Churchill said it or he's attributed, but the whole like we shape buildings and then they end up shaping us. Mm-hmm. There's a wonderful story that didn't make it into the book. And I um, you mentioned I grew up you know born in New York, but very much raised outside of Boston. And Arthur Fiedler was a very famous name in Boston and beyond Boston. And I always thought he was the guy who founded the Boston Pops. I mean, there was a Arthur Fiedler bridge. There were statues of the guy. And then I, I'm doing a little research when I was over in Sweden. And it turns out, and I should check this, but I mean, he was the 19th head of the Pops in, it had been started, you know, stick with me. This is, you know, rough, rough math here. But let's say, I mean, they'd had sort of 18 previous leaders in 26 years. I mean they just couldn't keep anyone in the job. But what's really interesting and I don't know if is the Boston Pops Michael sort of familiar to people outside of Boston. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So, um so the idea the original idea of the Pops that never worked until Arthur Fiedler took over was this idea of like hey, we should um you know, we shouldn't just get the the sort of upper crust of Boston who pay a lot for a ticket. We should kind of open it up and this is something that current organizations ever since have struggled with and tried to work through. So they they changed the pricing and they'd reorder the tables and they would do all the stuff within Boston Symphony Hall to try to make it more welcoming. And it just never worked. And so Arthur Fiedler, who was something like the third violinist or something, I mean, he wasn't sort of the most hierarchically important uh, musician in that world. So he takes over and he's like, you know what? I don't think there's any configuration of chairs in this building that will ever be welcoming. This whole place is intimidating to people Um, or to 99% of people in Boston. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go out to the banks of the River Charles where people do feel comfortable and are already gathered and I'm going to go play music for them. Who's with me? You know, and like only seven people did it. You know, and and then nine people came with him. You know, and then, and then, and then, and I think something like the first violinist, never, it just felt beneath him. Like, I'm just not going to go do that stupid stuff and play that kind of music. Um, okay, fair enough. He played amazing classical music in in the building. But what I love about it, and what I tried, I used this story with with the team at the embassy in Sweden to say, look, this building is like Boston Symphony Hall. I mean, it just... It, it's it's off putting, even though the original architect uh, Ralph Rapson built a beautiful building, but we turned it into a, for understandable reasons, looked like a prison, right? I mean, just huge fences and barbed wire, and so. So anyway, Arthur Friedler, you know, wildly successful. They make Boston Pops records in, in 1950s, 60s. I mean, it raised something like 52 million dollars which then went and rebuilt the new Boston Symphony Hall or refurbished it. So it wasn't an either or it's like, if you are willing to go outside the building, go to where people are, open up, lighten up, it can make the core thing you did stronger. And that relationship. So I love that story. And I tried to get in diplomacy to do a similar thing with this uh, road show.
1: You mentioned the, uh, the snowflake as an analogy uh, for, a kind of growth that you're particularly interested in. How does that work?
2: Well, and a lot of this comes from Jane Jacobs, who I'm sure, who's writing uh, and work you and 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 people listening to this are are well aware of. She's. I came to her a little bit late, um, and I've had so much fun reading her work. And and she's she's most well known for. The Death and Life of American Cities, which was her first book, I think, 1962, 63. Um, And towards the end of her life, uh, she gave a final interview, or what became the final interview. And she's asked, would you like to be remembered as the person who stood up to Robert Moses to save Greenwich Village? And she said, and I'm paraphrasing, no. Well, that part I'm not paraphrasing. She did say no. (laughs) And then she said no, I don't want to, I mean, I had to go stop things because there was so much destruction of things going on in my life. She ended up moving to Toronto and it continued there. But she's like, no, I don't want to be remembered for saying no to things. I want to be remembered for economics and specifically discovering, as she said, the fractal in human economic affairs. And so fractal is that Benoit Mendel brought this idea of, um they call it a seed pattern a simple small pattern that if you repeat it and repeat it and repeat it it leads to something big and complex um so a snowflake is a fractal certain kinds of broccoli like if you cut a piece of broccoli down from top to bottom and you look at it it's kind of made up of tiny little broccolis and so on And and the famous first example that Mandelbrot said was like how long is the coast of england and, you know, traditional science is like, that is a knowable number. And he's like, no, it's not. It depends what you're measuring with. Because at any at, at, from space, it looks like this jagged shape. Then you get much closer, it looks jagged. And then you get right down to the piece of sand on the Cornwall coast, and under a microscope, it is infinitely jagged. It just keeps going. There is no smoothness at any scale. And so it depends. If you have a small enough little thing, you keep measuring it. And so so her point in sort of less esoteric and more real life, um, when she looked around a place like Greenwich Village, she saw life. People, some people saw chaos. Robert Moses called them slums and wanted to clear them and make smooth, clean, in his mind, clean big housing projects and make everything orderly. So he thought it was orderly. She saw death and disorder where he saw order, and she saw life in a different kind of order in sort of the ballet of the streetscape. And, and, and she extended that into all sorts of economic realms. Um, and so I really was inspired. I didn't end up giving her enough space in the book. It just didn't work. She would have to almost be her whole other thing. So I'd love to return to her work in, in a later book because she's so great. remarkable. And her other books aren't as, I mean, I think they're very well appreciated for
0: her fans, but they, they haven't been, I don't think, as appreciated as they should be. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Matthew Barzen and host Michael Lerner.
1: You speak of constellation makers, that is, you have the pyramid, and by contrast, you have the constellation, which, as you point out, you know, this, your metaphor of the dollar bill, your visual analogy of the dollar bill that, that your book, you can get the central point of your book by just looking at the back of the dollar, the front of the dollar, and the, uh, the, the pyramid and the the constellation. Um, uh, but you mentioned, um, Jimmy Wales and D. Hawk as two constellation makers. Uh, mm. could you say more about them.
2: Yeah, and I think I mean certainly D. Hawk, and it may be different in in Northern California. He may be more well known there, but certainly I,
1: I, I know his work and uh, I know his book. He had a phrase that escapes me right now. For oh, was
2: it the monkey? Oh, chaotic.
1: Chaotic, yeah,
2: yeah. And so I got really into So dehawk Hawk. Um, he used to evidently. I didn't I haven't met him. He's still alive, and i I've, I've been trying to reach out to him, and I haven't. So if anyone knows him listening here please tell him thank you from me and that i've been trying to get in touch with him to send him a book and a thank you letter because his story is so inspiring and you know he he used to when he was kind of on the speaking circuit he'd hold up a visa card and he's like everyone heard of this all the hands go up and he's like you know and do you know d hawk and no one's ever you know and he's like, great, that's the way I want it. <laughs> but he, he's this really interesting character, um, born in kind of rural Utah and, and ends up getting into the banking world and, and just really doesn't like it. He doesn't like, and ironically, he's now famous for Visa, which we all has, has become associated with credit cards, but he didn't like credit. And with debt, and he didn't like debt. He he really, um, but anyway, he was a mid level, he was like middle aged, mid level manager at a mid sized bank in a mid tier city when the story begins. Um, And Bank America has the Bank America card, and it's really not working. Um, Late 60s, early 70s, I mean, it is breaking. The system does not work. Um, And the reason it's not working is you have, and his little mini bank is just part of this big pyramid of which Bank of America sits atop of. They're just affiliates, right? And so it doesn't work. So they they get all the affiliate banks together to try to figure out how to fix this thing. And so D, you know when you're in a meeting and you have an idea and you raise your hand and then all of a sudden you're put in charge? You know, so that happens to D, but he kind of takes it on. And so he has a group of people who also want to fix it. and And they give them a few days locked themselves away in a, in a hotel room in Sausalito, I think it was, um, to come up with a better plan. And it's too sort of detailed to get into in this setting, but it's certainly told in the book. But he comes up with these principles for a radically new way of organizing. And in the old way, what happened was all of Bank America's, Bank America itself and all its affiliates were forced into rigid cooperation. Bank of America set the rules and you complied with the rules, boom, one big pyramid made up of little mini pyramid banks. And then ruthless competition between, let's say, Citibank on the East Coast, you know, so rival big banks and all their affiliates. So there was forced cooperation and then forced competition. And one of Dee's amazing insights was like, he believes in competition and he believes in cooperation, but just creative mixtures of those things. And so he comes up with a whole system where, and this is the big leap, where Bank of America in the, in the new visa system, it wasn't called visa at the time, but the technical, how this all works between merchants and lending banks and credit card issuing banks, this whole confusing array, they would all compete and cooperate on absolutely equal terms. So Bank of America would have no more official power or veto power or voting power than his tiny little mid sized bank. And can you imagine the leap of faith it took on behalf of the leadership at, at Bank of America? And D went in and made his case. And to their credit, they said, OK, we'll take this leap with you. And they did. And it went on to create the largest commercial organization in the history of the world, measured by transactions. It keeps changing every month. So I used to know the you know, $13 trillion of transactions a year or something like that. Um, and so it's it's a great example, and it is a constellation of individual entities connecting, cooperating, and competing with lots of other ones to reduce the friction of um, cash. And it's a tricky thing because credit cards now are so rightly associated with really high APRs and all this other stuff, but that was really not—in fact, he got fired from all his earlier banks before he started Visa, what became Visa— Because he would advise all his clients not to go into debt, which wasn't exactly the business model of these banks. So he kept on getting fired for doing the right thing. Mm
1: -hmm. And Jimmy Wales, how is Jimmy Wales? Well, and then Jimmy Wales,
2: probably slightly well known to some of your listeners than Dee might be. But so he's the guy who co founded um, Wikipedia. And what I love about it, I mean, now it's a household name so much so that. We often say, let's say we're at the Thanksgiving table and, you know, the dispute arises, a factual dispute arises. And people like like, will get out their phone. And it's like, we'll we'll Google it and put this matter to rest, Mm -hmm. which is what we do. But we really should say we Wikipedia it, right? Because Google Google gets you there. It doesn't settle the thing. And usually what pops up first is Wikipedia. And if someone's obscure blog pops up, that doesn't really settle it, right? So Mm -hmm. Wikipedia is this remarkable thing. But it starts out. Back in the early 2000s, when Harvard Business School had just declared Microsoft the winner in the dictionary in the, in the encyclopedia wars, so Microsoft, then the richest company in the world, takes on the oldest one of the oldest companies in the world, Britannica. Who's going to win? You know, and Harvard Business School pronounces uh, Microsoft's Encarta. Some of the listeners may remember Encarta, and it had won in quotes. You know, for like six months. Along comes Jimmy Wales, a commodities trader from Alabama. Um, who says, I am going to make an online encyclopedia. I'm going to pay people $0 to contribute to it. And I'm going to charge people $0 to read it. So can you imagine being in that pitch meeting, right? So people were not very enthusiastic. And which I think most telling, and I know we don't have time for all of this, but he didn't start out. His first idea was not, Wikipedia. His first idea was Newpedia, which you've never heard of, none of us has, because it didn't last long. And Newpedia was almost the same as Wikipedia, with one crucial difference. And I love this difference, because this is the difference between a pyramid and a constellation. Newpedia was, we're going to pay nobody anything, we're not going to charge anything, but because we're the new kids on the block and no one knows us, and we're up against the richest company in the world and the oldest company in the world we are paranoid and jimmy was paranoid that they weren't going to be taken seriously and people were going to plagiarize articles so they set up a double peer review i think it was a 10 step process to screen people out at the end of 1 year they had only 18 volunteered written articles so jimmy gets frustrated he's like ah oh, come on so he starts to write his own article for it like i come on this is silly we need more people and so he picks a topic like one of his favorite economists he writes it, and then he was, he's like, this is so hard, right? I can't even get it through my own 10-step double peer review. And this just wasn't going to work at 18 articles a year. So a colleague of his comes up to him and says, hey, there's a new kind of technology called Wiki. It would let, you know, Michael write a sentence, Jane write a paragraph, Matthew come in, maybe doesn't want to write either, but he's good at editing. So everyone can do what they're good at. And people make articles collaboratively. And Jimmy said, "Okay, I mean, it's worth a shot. And they do it. After the first year, 18,000 articles. And now it's well over, I think, 6 million in English alone. Wikipedia is in 240 countries. It is a beautiful and radiant constellation. It is the largest human knowledge transfer engine the world has ever seen. And it is a beautiful constellation right? It lets people stand out and make contributions of whatever size and fit into something much greater than they ever could on their own.
1: So let me reflect with you now uh, some of my experiences with these things. Um, First of all, I've said to you that your approach is very much the approach that we've used at Commonweal uh, for 45 years. You know, Commonweal, uh, Works in health and healing, education, the arts and environment and justice and um, small organization, but grew from a half dozen projects to 30 or 40 now. And we're certainly not trying to grow. We're responding to requests for service. Um, Mm -hmm. But um, one of and, and my basic premise all these years is that the right people show up with a passion for their work who want to work with us yeah. and we do a discernment process and if we agree with them they join our community and the deal is really simple they basically have to find their own resources and they have immense freedom to do their work
2: mm.
1: so yeah. you know my brief version of this is um Sometimes the idea is mine. Sometimes the idea is someone else's. Sometimes it comes from the person coming in, but you know, my version is start something, find people better than you are and get out of their way. That's, you know, my
2: well, principle. yes. And can I just pick up on that last yeah. phrase? Because this is a question I've been getting sort of on this book yeah. tour that I'm virtual book tour that I'm on. Um, and, be, and and i get the question i think for good reason because it's called the power of giving away power how the best leaders learn to let go and and there's a perception i think and that it's sort of like delegating or power sharing or something which i know are close but i think it's important certainly from where i see it the publisher wouldn't let me to let me say the power of giving away power so that you get it back again so that you can give it away again so that you can get it back again which is sort of a mouthful and yet what i just said actually describes and i'm curious if you agree in your commonweal experience over the decades that that's actually what happens you don't give it away in this sort of selfless way no it's no like you give it you give it away because y- you know you don't have all the right answers and then you get it back and then you give it away again and it's that it's sort of mysterious mutuality that that gives the whole thing energy and it comes back again and so even the word delegating kind of has that sort of hands-off. I, you know? agree,
1: with you. I agree with you. And um, But here's the other side for me, because I was walking with a colleague up here on Whidbey Island, where uh, we also live part of the time, from a, a wonderful nonprofit profit up here, and she had just taken it over, and she was in love with Hawk's chaotic system of organizing. And she uh, was going to run the nonprofit on that model. And I basically said to her, you know, I wish you luck. uh, Because I said that in my experience, that part of the process of decentralized decision making is that at a place like Commonweal, is that, but in many organizations, is that if it isn't clear who the final decision maker is, there is a um, there is the perception of a vacuum of how things will ultimately be decided, which creates power struggles, basically. Mm. And uh, mm. at uh, my colleague Oren Slossberg, and so at Commonweal, while I was running it, now Oren. Um, uh, I've always wanted it to be clear that somebody had the final say, that someone had the final say, and to me, that is what has enabled us. and Oren said to me in the you know seven years he'd been working with me, he said he'd never seen me exercise that power, which was it's,
2: you know it's so interesting, Michael. Yeah. It, Jimmy Wales said something almost exactly what you said. I think he described it to our embassy team when he was asked along a similar line and he said i'm kind of like a constitutional monarch i have these powers and if i were to use them i would probably lose them right but that they exist in and and i thought that was clever and i'm not i mean look i'm still trying to think through this stuff that someone we haven't talked about who's hugely important to me um is mary parker follett
1: yes i was gonna ask who i wish were here but she
2: died a hundred years ago um So Mary Parker Follett was, is this amazing woman who wrote a hundred years ago as America's, she's American, grew up outside of Boston, um, did all her social work in Boston. Um, born 1868, dies 1933. At her time, she was the most sought after speaker on what she had sort of like the viral Ted talk of her day. Um, and it was all about Michael, what you're talking about and, and this and what I'm talking about. And, And it's really interesting, I think, particularly for all of us now, because she's writing about in America coming out of a global pandemic, big raging debates about minimum wage, about uh, the power of big business, about the fear of government overregulation, all these things, you know, social, economic, racial uh, division everywhere she looks. And those can all sound big and daunting, but she, she had this belief that we could start to heal in really small groups. Um, and so her, her, her killer Ted talk, so to speak was, I shouldn't say killer, her wonderful Ted talk was, um, she's the one who came up with power with not power over. And she called it the law of the situation. And, and her first speech was called on giving orders. And, and, um, and so she, I think would say, if she were part of this conversation, she would say, if you, if you set it up, right. The, the, what she meant by law of the situation, if everyone's clear about what is trying to be accomplished that 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 thing that is outside of everyone and bigger than everyone, it will sort of be the decision maker on what happens
1: um, right at most most that, of the time and for me, the way I talk about that is I start a project and people people have different tolerances for ambiguity. Mm. Have a really high tolerance for ambiguity. So I start a project and because people need some sense of vision, I'm not talking about all projects that come I'm talking about the ones that I start. Yeah, I start it and I lay out a vision so that people say, oh, okay, that's what the plan is. But the other part is, I am totally unattached to whether my vision turns out to be what happens or not. Yes. And what I talk about is I'm waiting for the universe to show us what this project wants to be. So there's the combination of mm. personal detachment from whether the vision I've laid out is how it turns out to be. And a and a complete openness to whether somebody else has a better idea or whether the universe, as we do this, starts small make your mistakes early, embrace error, um, and uh, and let the universe show you what the project wants to be. Um, so that's one point. Mm-hmm. I, I want to go to one other and then ask you to respond. It seems to me that, the, as you said, uh, 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 that um, Mary Parker Follett was Peter Drucker's uh, guru, and uh, he was the 20th century's most influential management thinker, leadership thinker. And you said her ideas boil down to three expectations: expect to need others, expect to be needed, and expect to be changed. Hmm. And I think that's really beautiful. You know.
2: Well, I almost said that, and thank you because. When you asked me at the outset of our conversation, hey, if a book can only be about one idea, what's that one idea? And as I scrambled to come up with an answer, that was one thing I almost said. Like, bring that, those three expectations to every encounter. Um, and, and, And because what's brilliant about her insight, I think, and I'm glad you picked up on that. Is that if you if you put it in sort of today's lingo? I mean that is today's lingo because I I I wrote those. I mean she doesn't say it that way, but that's where she's pointing. Um, so expect to be needed. We would say bring your full self, right? Nobody else can. So if you don't bring your full self, you are denying that group something that only you can provide. Okay. Number two, expect to need others, right? So this is her point. Like you just can't come in and expect to have your idea win. Like, why did you invite anyone else to the meeting, right? Um, And then the third expectation is the most important because, and this kind of gets back to the only reason she thinks you should ever get together, you know, not to win, not to let someone else win, and not even to compromise, which is hard because we're often told by society to compromise. She's like, compromising is just winning and losing in little miniature bits, the only reason you should get together is co-creation. Make something together. You might make a determination together. You might make a house together. I mean it could be physical or small or make a whiteboard sketch together. Really doesn't matter. The act Mine of making baby something. Baby. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. Um, more on that later. We um but it was your point about like once you set that in motion, that thing you've made is totally and forever part of you. You are forever part of it, but you're not diminished in it. You start to see the constellation thing happening. Like you're still, you're a distinct person, but you're just part of this new combination. Um, And so yes, bring your full self, but you have a reciprocal obligation to leave that meeting a different person than you came in. And that is a hard and really, I think, important, third point because then we're always growing and we don't get stuck and become a you know one note charlie one note charlotte um
1: so this is the point at which i really love this conversation because we get into real conversation here i think of all the different situations in which constellation work happens in very different ways so for example uh the anarchist movement in Spain before Franco, uh, you could certainly say was a constellation movement. Uh, it was radically decentralized. Nobody was in control. And, uh, uh, and but it wasn't chaotic. It was just uh, a remarkable experiment. Um, Paul Hawkins, you may know, wrote this extraordinary book called Blessed Unrest. And hmm. uh, it was about... Uh, essentially the, glo- the global movement to save the world. And he said, what, it's the greatest social movement anybody's ever seen. And yet um, sociologists of social movements can't understand it because it doesn't seem to have a leader anywhere. He said, hmm. it's like an, an immune system of the body that wherever there's trouble, the you know, needed cells gather to to knit things up and he said that these local organizations cannot afford to be uh, you know, fanatics of the left or the right or whatever because they're trying to solve a local situation and they need as many people as possible involved. So with both anarchism and the blessed unrest model, you have a true constellation without single leadership. And you have, in effect... Um, in the anarchism model, you have sim- something similar to the uh, Mary Parker Follett, what are the rules of the road for this particular situation? In the blessed unrest model, you don't even have any rules. But coming back to the my friend who ran the organization here, uh, as I kept checking back in with her over time, because she really believed that this organization could run without her being in control. Mm. I said to her, you know, I'll be just really interested to see how that works out for you. And over time she did realize, at least this is my interpretation, that it was important for her to have the final say because otherwise people, you know, and I would suggest to you that in most of the situations where you have made this work, that there are people who have the final say, that in the Obama campaign, at CNET, uh, uh, in the embassies, and so on and so forth, you were letting this loose, you were unleashing it, but in each situation, somebody had the final say. And I'm not sure, and please- Well, I mean, so I I know what you mean, and you, you,
2: I mean, certainly a case of, seen that in the campaign there is someone in a yeah so so the part I think these words are important it's like um final say and control I think are understandable words to 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 get at what you're talking about, which is um so, what? what so a word I prefer, just because I think it's less. There, there is in all these constellations uh, a rigor, right? Mm-hmm. So, let's take Wikipedia for a second. We talked about Jimmy as constitutional monarch, so I think he would sort of agree with with mm-hmm. that premise you made. What's really remarkable is there's a rigor from the outset, right from the beginning. I mean, it is a miracle 20 years later that Wikipedia isn't a giant corkboard for humanity, right? Of just self-promotion and self trashing right. I mean, look, it has its issues, right? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. uh, of, of highly contentious pages that people are kind of fighting out our culture wars on Wikipedia. But that is a tiny fraction of, of what's mm-hmm. happening. What, what It's a self-correcting and self-healing thing, but a very rigorous sense of what encyclopedia article The pattern and tone of that article. You can't be a, it's not MySpace, it's not Facebook, it's not look at me, you know. And and that was always part of their vision. And same with Visa. I mean, real rigor. And I talk a little bit and I I should, you know, many listeners and I think you and your team know a lot more about AA, but I am inspired by its history and its present and how most people have heard of the 12 Steps. I had never heard of the 12 principles. And And you also
1: speak of the 12 traditions.
2: Yeah. Well, so the 12 principles are how a group should function as a group and how groups deal with other groups. And as I went back and read this history, that how important that was so that it didn't devolve into sort of chaotic, self-promoting, da-da-da. And so the rigor around... Group dynamics within a group and between groups, it's almost mirroring how d set it up with Visa. And so I go back to that word rigor and, you know, competition and cooperation at the same time and real clear rules and purpose, all that stuff. It's not some sort of amorphous group hug, which often I'm sure Commonweal is accused of, this book will be accused of. No, there's lots of rigor there, which is the point you're making to your friend um and control is the word you use which yeah I mean, you need someone okay so here's a question i have for you
1: did i use the word control i i, I yes said you did oh, no okay. you
2: said control oh, which okay. is and yet that just comes with the whole
1: oh i said somebody's in control
2: yeah someone's in control yeah. and and so you're not controlled but but and i'm not saying you're wrong it, it is something i'm thinking through um Okay, so my, my mom has helped me be aware of the wonderful healing circle work.
1: Um, yeah, that's a you, perfect perfect example of what we're talking about. In a lot. So of. so let me. So
2: here's a question I've had for you that I that, um, and so I understand that there are two. I think someone plays, and I'm capitalizing these in my head, and they may not be official roles, but I loved when I heard about them. Mm-hmm. Someone plays capital H host. Is that true? And then someone plays, to me, capital G, sort of guardian maybe. Okay. So I love I love those words because I, and I haven't done a healing circle, but so I get that. And my question to you, I think so many good things in life come in fours, right? Four gospels, Harry Potter, four houses. So four, four, four. Threes too, but let's just stick with fours. So I imagine a room where host is written in one corner and it has a few descriptions of what's required of a host. Mm. I imagine in another corner guardian and a brief description of what's required of a guardian. I think not knowing group dynamics as well as you do but being fascinated by it. That there are two other corners. And, and now I'm going beyond healing circle. I'm just saying wherever people are gathered. And the the name would be that all that everyone in a thing could find their main corner and they may be torn between two. But they're like, yeah, this is my corner. Now, I contrast this with like a jury pool, right? You get together with a jury pool. I've never been in one. I never get picked. Don't know why that is. But it's like, you can be the jury for a person or just a juror, right? And we all, and so much of that's just the pyramid. Like who's going to be the quarterback or the boss? Because someone's got to be. Maybe you have a... And so I'm wondering what the other two corners would be that would give a home to people who don't want to be host and don't want to be guardian? Have you putting yeah, you on the spot well, here?
1: This is such a great conversation. Um, and let me bring in something else that you talk about that is relevant to the conversation. But first, Alcoholics Anonymous is my go-to example of one of the great social inventions of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's completely extraordinary. And okay. there are other similar... Uh, social movements. I mean, the, the self-care movement in the United States is an extraordinary movement without the structure of AA. Mm. Um, the scouting movement is often overlooked as an extraordinary movement, which has a fascinating history. So these these social movements, I mean, you know, then you get into the civil rights movement, the human rights movement, the women's movement. So at what point, I'm not asking you to answer this, but we're reflecting together, mm. at what point are movements, which I think have that constellation quality uh, with no one in control, and yet because there isn't a rigor to guide them, they tend to break up into different, you know, factions or whatever.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Matthew Barzen and host Michael Lerner.
1: The places that hold, and maybe we're really getting somewhere here, are the ones that have a rigor and a very clear sense of purpose. And uh, I would agree with you that, uh, I mean, they needed founders to, um, Religions are examples of that, although they tend to break up, Um, but they need founders. They need a moral code, which is a certain rigor.
2: Well, no, I just was, if if you go back to Jane Jacobs and you go back to this idea of a fractal seed pattern, that first little pattern. And as I learned about AA and you have, you know, that it's a stockbroker in Akron, Ohio, who helps heal a doctor. Right. I just love that you know the stockbroker healing a doctor but the the call that 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 the stockbroker makes when he arrives on a business trip and starts to feel himself sinking into this hole he calls a priest it's like do you know any alcoholics and the priest yeah. is like no which is interesting because he probably did but he's like but i know a woman who does and there's a woman who i'm sure must be famous i hope she is in aa circles henrietta so the priest connects the stockbroker to henrietta henrietta says i have just the person i have been trying unsuccessfully to help dr bob for so long and the reason the sockbroker needs a fellow addict is he's like i can only help myself through and by helping somebody else so built into that very first pattern and henrietta gets them together is a a basic need for somebody else not Because he's being selfish and not because he's being selfless. His liberation is inexorably tied up with somebody else's. And so you need to add one, add one. And that's a great guard from the beginning against being a little clique and being contented with how perfect you are, which in so many other organizations may start well, but then start to calcify and be proud of who they're keeping out.
1: One of the places in the book that really struck me and again i just the book is catalyzing my thinking about our work moving forward uh in so many ways but you report this massive study that google did about what makes the most effective leadership team Mm. and what did they find
2: yeah so that you know is it the most um the one with the most charismatic leader is it the one with the most hands-off leader? Is it the one with the most diversity? Is it the one with the most homogeneity? You name it. You know, they looked at every possible thing, multi-year study through lots of smart people and resources at the at this question. Um, and number one, um, and Professor Amy Edmondson at Harvard Business School is amazing. And I just was able to speak and I learned a lot from her about this. Uh, and Charles Duhigg writes about it. Um, number one thing is do these teams have with and through one another psychological safety? Is is the buzzword, and and a good buzzword I think. Um, but can they get real with one another? Is this, um, which is kind of wonderful that that is the and and in my I sort of come at it from the this idea of fruitful friction. Uh, and that we shouldn't be scared of difference and we shouldn't be scared of friction as long as we can make it constructive. Um, and it's where I think a lot where the work you care so much about and I care so much about will be mis- can be mischaracterized as sort of naive and feel good and good news. You know, it's like, no, 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 this is embracing difference and struggle and making it productive. And, and that's what um, I think, the Google project, which was called Project Aristotle. Um, We started off our discussion quoting Aristotle with the soul never thinks without an image. The soul never thinks without an image. And so what is the image we have of ourselves and of those around us?
1: In your discussion of psychological safety, you described that the qualities of it, uh, my words, are strong relationships uh people aren't blamed for their mistakes i would say we embrace error it's okay to bring up the hard stuff it's okay to ask for assistance and churchill's line about charity toward each other's shortcomings yeah yeah
2: and yeah go ahead well and churchill who's someone who is sort of you know i guess controversial these days or talked about but he's certainly the image so many have of him as an imperfect and really important leader and living in London. He's just always, and I had to weirdly get in all these sort of stupid things because there was this rumor that Obama had like banished the Churchill bust from the White House. It wasn't true. He had won his entire presidency sitting right outside his private office in the residence, but it just, the story wouldn't die. So I had to find myself being like, wasn't really what I wanted to talk about, but And then I just thought about that image of like a Churchill bust, like a head, like a disembodied head cast in bronze all by itself. And I was like, what a ludicrous, here is this imperfect and really important man who, and right down the street from where I live, where we worked at the American embassy was this, I think the right image to have of him, which is him on a park bench, smoking a cigar And then, you know, cast in bronze, for sure. But, um, and then FDR next to him with space in between for someone to go sit down. And I was like, that's a better, because he coined special relationship, which has become a cliche that people either love or hate, but no thinking going on. And so I tried to sort of unpack, what do we mean special relationship? You know, what's the opposite of special routine? What's the opposite of relationship, which is about people? Let's call it transactions. So the opposite of a special relationship is a routine transaction. And boy, aided and abetted by technology, we have all gotten really good at creating routine transactions. Um, but you do. But the cost of having a friction-free experience is there's no energy there. That's the catch and the cost, right? So that's where the Google stuff ties in, which is if you can create psychological safety, then you can form these special, like real special, lowercase SR special relationships. Um, where the fruitful friction lives. So,
1: And you have a two-by-two two grid that you used in the UK. about with. Uh, could you say more about how that grid... I know it's so tricky in a
2: podcast format because I'm a visual thinker
1: yeah. and
2: so many of these things. And I tried not to have too many in the book, but mm-hmm. I hope I got the balance right. But it is one of those two-by-two, yeah. two, you know, northwest, east, south, that, that takes the word special sort of over to the east and the opposite routine to the west and relationship to the north and transaction to the south and it talks about special relationships in the upper right hand corner routine transactions in the lower left hand corner fruitful friction and friction free and that if you that most healthy group dynamics can flow between those two in what i call a bloom loop and it gets a little esoteric but i'll I'll tell me if this works for you I, i try to do it in a family setting and I'll start with the friction-free. I remember I, on the way to school every day in Lincoln, Massachusetts, I'd go by our neighbor's house and we'd stop and pick up their youngest daughter who was my older sister's best friend. It was the Perry's house, wonderful family. So I got to see somebody else's breakfast every single morning growing up, which is kind of a weird thing. You don't normally don't see that. And, and I loved it because it was sort of mysterious. I mean, they, it was like burnt coffee. I remember that burnt coffee and toast was the smell which I love for some reason, you know, like, and I'd go in and I'd watch them and they're barely, and this is, I think, true of so many families with small kids. There's almost no talking that happens. There's like this silent ballet where no one's talking, just sort of grunting little micro movements. They all know the role they have to play to get through the breakfast. It doesn't last very long. And then I thought to myself, it's like, and I read in an article and I can't remember who wrote it, but they talked about, the difference between the ballet of breakfast and the drama of dinner and -hmm. that it's family dinners where laughter happens and tears happen and people get up and stomp out of the room or hug each other, right? So that is fruitful friction. So if we go back to our two by two, the drama of Mm -hmm. family dinner is in the upper right-hand corner and the sort of friction-free ballet of breakfast is in the lower left and they relate, like you earn the right to be Friction 3 because you spend time in both quadrants and you get this kind of bloom loopy thing going. Mm-hmm. And that's in contrast, and I'm not sure this is going to hold up here on audio, but that's in contrast to those other quadrants, which we didn't talk about, which is routine relationships. You know, when you get off an airplane back when we could fly more and the, the nice flight attendant says, thanks for coming thanks for flying with us. Thanks for flying with us. Thanks for flying. I mean, they say the exact same thing to 80 people in a row. And you just sort of think, gosh, why don't you just make a recording? Like you don't, clearly you don't mean this. Why don't you just automate that? Mm -hmm. Or when you go to the doctor's office, which is the special transaction corner, and you fill out the identical paperwork, you know, you filled out 10 times before. And you just think, aren't I already in the system? You know, just, you know again replicate it automate it so our tendency is to push everything down into the left into a friction-free space Mm. and what i think churchill and other these leaders are like and you have to go invest and empathize and humanize and spend time in that psychological safety fruitful friction quadrant and then you get Mm. that happy bloom loop as i call it
1: um i want to go a little bit into your life story a little more. Um, And um, let me just take two people, uh, uh, Jacques Barzon, uh, who was the French-American historian, uh, known for studies of history of ideas and cultural history. Um, And then um, uh, and then um, Lucretia Coffin Mott, uh, who is an oh, ancestor, yeah. who is a, a feminist activist and a strong advocate for ending slavery. Now, you, you've you been trained in history, and, and your book is highly historically informed. Um, do you think much about Lucretia Mott and Jacques Barzin uh, and sort of how those lineages have come down to you what they mean to you.
2: I do. It's loaded for me. In the well, I, my grandfather Barzin is sort of in his own category in my mind, just because he was such an. I mean, he was alive. He died at 104 and 11 twelfths right. in 2012. So I was how old? 42. So I've known him up until he died when I was 42, and he was. An unbelievable mentor and grandfather to me. He wasn't sort of bounce you on your knee kind of grandfather. You know, he wasn't like that. It was sort of, and I sort of went out of my way to try to develop a relationship with him. I mean, I sort of worked at it. Um, and I would send him all the papers I wrote in high school after the fact. I mean, I'd already gotten the grade on them, right? But then he would send them back and he had this amazingly, I think the lycee in Paris taught him beautiful handwriting. And so he would send it back. I mean, redlined line edits on all the paper. It's like, I've already written it. I wasn't asking for help. I just was sort of, I guess, showing off in my teenage way. But he was tough. I mean, you know, uh, lovingly tough about writing. Um, And so he, but one of the most impactful things actually happened towards the end of his, two things, towards the end of his life, my little brother, Charles, or my younger brother, Charles, and I would go see him and his uh, his wonderful wife, Marguerite, who is my step-grandmother. They moved down to San Antonio from New York. And uh, he revealed to me uh, that he had really wanted to be, after he left Colombia, a diplomat. And at the time, I was a diplomat, uh, serving in Sweden at the time. And I thought, oh, that's so nice, because I had sort of wanted to go into his line of work and be a professor and it didn't turn out that way. And then it was neat for him to say, oh, I wanted to be a diplomat, but it didn't turn out that way. So that was kind of fun. But for Lucretia Mott, who is a wonderful story and inspiring my Great Times Five grandmother, um, who, as you said, was a was a born on Nantucket, Massachusetts, to a Quaker family, then spent her adult life in outside of Philadelphia, and was an amazing social activist and an amazing mother, and an amazing grandmother, really started her public career at age 40. Um, And she started out, and she was actually adamantly, she was very clear in her own mind that um, women could wait, basically. I don't know if she put it that way. But the the, the first order of business was to um, end the horrors of slavery. And then we could try to expand suffrage to women. But she was very clear and, and and made some of the younger generation. She was a mentor to Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. She chaired the Seneca Falls Women's Rights Convention. But I'm sort of getting ahead of myself. But before that, she was pretty adamant about it. And then I think the story goes, she goes to London to speak at an abolition conference and she isn't allowed up on, she was a great speaker, wasn't allowed up on stage because she was a woman. And that just was like, oh, okay, wait, these things aren't, you can rationally disconnect the two, but these all connect and these, um, and then of course, dedicated the rest of her life to, to both. Um, and so that's inspiring, but it's funny, you know, I grew up in Boston with wonderful parents and grandparents and all that stuff, but there is a, the, the, the ancestor worship part of, which exists anywhere, Boston does it pretty well. Um, and by well, that's not really a compliment, like is not so great. I got into a funny debate. So my Great Times 10 grandfather was this guy, John Winthrop, who was the first governor of Massachusetts back in 1630. And so there's a fair amount of sort of ancestor worship for him. And he came from this little town in Suffolk. So when I was in London, I went there and I you know that was a neat connection or whatever, but I did the math and I won't remember it off the top of my head, but I said, okay, so he's 10 generations or 11 generations, right? My great time's 10 grandfather. I have, oh, what is the math? We could do it. I think I have 5,094 if you did a reverse family tree. 5,094, great, great, you know, and I've picked him, Right. And if you flip it, so that's just an upside-down pyramid, right? All those other people and then me at the bottom. So I don't like to look at the world that way. If you do the other kind, like how many people could claim him as his 10 times? Now, that's less precise math because you don't know. But, I mean, it's on the order of half a million. So it's not so precious. And yet we treat it. And if you happen to have the same name, you know, fine. You're telling yourself a story. But I think we go overboard with that stuff. Sure we do. I guess, And here's a fun one. So I find out through my wonderful mother. So we grew up in this little town where like the Revolutionary War started, right? So like we thought Patriots Day, which for those of you listening is April 19th, like I thought that was a national holiday. It was like almost like Christmas. Mm -hmm. Everyone would dress up like red coats or like Minutemen. We'd march to Concord. I mean, it was huge. So I found out like two years ago that our Great Times Five grandfather is Paul Revere, that is kind of cool. No one ever mentioned that, which is just so weird. The stories we choose to pass on about Mm -hmm. who sort of matters in the past. And so I like this idea of adopting historical figures who you have no, you know, quote, blood relation to, but who are just your long lost, you know, Mm -hmm. mentors from another age and you learn from them through books and then pass them on. So Mm-hmm. That that to me is where I choose do to
0: focus. Any,
1: uh, do you have any religious, spiritual, or philosophical guiding star that you're able to describe?
2: Ooh, you know, in an earlier version of the book, I describe, and it got taken out because the book changed so dramatically and it wouldn't make sense. But So I'm an adult convert Christian, which I remember saying that to my siblings, and they're like, well, that's slightly misleading, so I'll explain it. My mother is very spiritual and, and uh, I don't know how she you can ask her herself. I would say a, episcopalian, mm-hmm. but religious the way it would. Mm-hmm. But my dad is not. Um, and I want to make sure if he's listening that I don't miss I mean categorize him, but definitely not religious, somewhere on the agnostic to atheist part of the spectrum. So we when my parents got divorced, I was 11. And my mother, so I'm one of four children. So I have an older sister, younger sister, younger brother. And she turned, we lived right next to the little church in Lincoln Mass, like 100 yards, 200 yards from this little white New england church, which tells you something. It was half, let me see if I get this right, half Congregationalist, half Unitarian, and they would rotate. So now that I know a little bit more about Christianity, half the time your minister would believe in the divinity of Christ and half the time they wouldn't, which is kind of, a big deal if I, I think in retrospect but anyway it was that somehow worked for them in the decliningly religious uh part of you know boston so anyway at age 11 my mom says well uh my dad moves out and my mom says well you um it's up to you your dad didn't want you to be baptized but now you can be baptized and so my sister says yes, and my little sister says yes, and my little brother says yes, and I fold my arms, and I was like, nope, don't believe in any of this stuff. And and I mean, I was just sort of a rebellious, pissed off 11-year-old, um, but it felt really good to be given the choice and to be able to say no. Then I went to an Episcopal boarding school, and I refused to ever sing a hymn, ever say amen. I mean, I was really again, just sort of rebellious and like, I don't believe any of this stuff. And, and I I would, so, and I think sort of the culture, I tried to describe this later to my kids that the culture, and I don't attribute this to my parents, but just sort of the culture I grew up in broadly was like, oh, come on, smart people don't believe in God. Like really. So anyway, long story short, I marry an amazing woman named Brooke and she's Catholic. Um, and I think, oh my gosh, I have to get married in a church. Like I'm not gonna stand up and say things I don't believe. So it just became this whole journey. So I started reading and I read G.K. Chesterton, which led me to Dorothy Sayers, which led me to C.S. Lewis. And I just, it really all started up here. And then it started to kind of go down here, pointing to my from my head to my heart. I started reading, reading, reading. And long story short, when we had our third child named Charles, when he got baptized, I decided to get baptized. I was age 30, I guess I just turned 35. And it was tricky because I wanted to get, we went to a Catholic church, but I wasn't ready to be baptized Catholic. I just wanted to be Christian like I would have been at age 11. But it turns out if you're a grown up, you can't get baptized. You got to do the whole thing. So I ended up doing outside the cathedral. And then you have to have like a home church, but I did have a home church, but they wouldn't do it. So it became really convoluted. So we had this team effort that I got one amazing man who agreed to have my baptism certificate stay at his house church. This amazing woman from Indiana came down and she did the actual baptism. And our now deceased uh, archbishop from the Catholic church, he, he was told like he had to be, there were rules for these things. He could be a witness to it, but he had to be over 28 feet away. And so he marched, Twenty-eight feet away, and there he was, and he was so wonderfully supportive. Anyway, that is a long story. I don't think I've ever said yeah, out loud
1: before. I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful.
0: You're listening to a TNS conversation with Matthew Barzen and host Michael Lerner.
1: And having been baptized, what does, what does it mean to you?
2: Well, then I had this dream. The part that I took out of the book was. A few years before, but I know it connects. So maybe four years before I get baptized, I wake up. It wasn't the middle of the night; it was like six in the morning. Mm -hmm. And it was one of these things. I'm sure you've had this. I've talked to other people. Like I say, a waking dream, which is sort of how you think about it. And it's a boxing match, which I've never been to in real life, but. Muhammad Ali at this time is alive. He lives in Louisville. I don't, I have no connection to Muhammad Ali at all, but I had just moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where he's from. And I'm, I have this incredibly vivid dream that he is boxing. And I am like 20 rows back watching him box and he gets knocked out and he doesn't get up. And for some reason, I, with no connection to Muhammad Ali in this dream, run down into the ring and he like put his, like in my his head in my lap and i'm like there and he's dying in my arms and i am like absolutely overwhelmed with like just love like filling me up like a vessel just like overflowing and i sit up in bed and i'm like tears all the way down, like crying like i've never cried before mm. and i was looking around and i was like you know my wife is sleeping and i was like that is strange and beautiful and it just And so I turned around, I kept a little dream journal back then. So I just like, I write it all down. Yeah. So I haven't said that before, but I I did write it down for this earlier book that I kind of put on the shelf. So that was a big moment of like, wow. Okay. That feeling of overwhelming love Mm. and joy and connectedness was a sort of a big dream, as they say. Mm.
1: And since you rejected religion for a really long time, was there any kind of philosophical or pragmatic philosophical? Was there a was there a way of being in the world that was a guidance system for you?
2: Yeah, well, Dorothy Sayers is is this. I don't know if you've read any of her mm-hmm. work. I mean, she got sort of she supported herself writing these wonderful Peter Whimsy detective novels, mm-hmm. which are great. But that, what, she wrote this book, and my grandfather recommended it to me, and it's, it's a short book. In fact, I was aiming to make my book, it's nowhere near as good, but I wanted to make it roughly the length of Mind of the Maker, which she wrote, 1943. And she says, and I really encourage everyone to read it, it is so good, and I'm not going to do her justice in this recap. But she basically says, look, there's two images we're given of God, God the Father and God the creator. She said, God the Father is tricky for me. I didn't have a very good one, and I'm never going to be one. Right? And I thought that was so beautiful. She was like, I'm a woman, so I can't be a dad. And so she's like, fine, other people can write about God the Father. I don't find that helpful. Mm -hmm. But I think she said, I think we all can relate to making things. Mm -hmm. she's like, I make books. You might make tables or chairs or whatever but like we make things as people and and then the whole rest of the book and she's like look I'm not trying to turn you into a Christian this is not one of those things she says okay there is the idea of the book mm-hmm. and it occurs in a flash like it it's done like mm-hmm. I know what it is and that and so she's kind of calls that in the in the Christian sense she's like that's like God the father the idea and then she says now you have to make it manifest. You actually have to put literal pen to paper back in her day and write it out. Okay, so you do that. And then she's like, so let me actually stay away from the Christian stuff because her point's actually really relevant to people who aren't Christian in anything. It's just a really a statement about creativity. She's like, the idea of the thing, then you got to go make the thing. So write the book. 185 pages then and this is the really interesting part so there's the book as idea the book as written and then the the third thing and the final thing is the book as read and she's like now you can make the distinction about the idea of the book the actual physical manifestation of the book and the reading of the book they are all the book and she's like and they're mysteriously all interconnected you can understand the difference but you can't really ever separate them mm-hmm. and so in the in the christian trinity one it's god the father god the son god the holy spirit three in one and she's like rather she's like I she likes to reflect on the sort of mystically on wow how something can be at once three different things but really just one thing mm-hmm. that's beautiful you know, we, and i it really stuck with me and at that point when i started reading her i wasn't Far on my spiritual journey, as much, but it really just struck me as someone who was making websites. I was like, "Oh, that's kind of neat." Just the creative process as idea, do it, experience it. And in diplomacy, it was relevant because we started off the conversation. Like I went to 200 high schools, as you mentioned. I did workshops with 20,000 British 18-year-old girls and boys, and asked them about their fears and frustrations and their hopes. And we—it was really each one was different and remarkably the same, but lovely. And, and I was asked to come give a talk to uh, the guy who ran the Department of Education for the whole United Kingdom, wonderful man, and asked me to share what I'd learned from all these British students. So I did. and I remember. And then I opened it up for questions. And I remember, you can just tell someone's body language, right? There was this guy who was sitting in the front row during my speech, and he just hated it. He didn't know who I was, but you could, I mean, his arms were folded and he didn't hold up two thumbs down, but I mean, his facial expression basically said that. And of course he asked the first question. So I was like, all right, this isn't going to be fun. So I I was like, yes, sir. What do you think? And he said, well, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, fine. What does any of that have to do with policy? which I guess presumably he thought was my job. And it was one of those moments, like, I don't remember what I said, but it was something sort of defensive and apologetic, just some bad blend of defensive and apologetic. And then I moved on to the next question, and that was more positive and whatever. And then I think the French call it spirit of the staircase. You know, when it we, we, you, it occurs to you long after you're gone, the thing you wish you'd said. And it occurred to me, and it was Dorothy Sayers, and then ever after, I, I sort of re-brought her to the forefront uh, of my mind, which was, and, you know, he's just like, this, none of this counts in his world. Like, talking to young people, like, Ugh. I mean, it's like filler. Like, real decisions get made in, you know, small rooms of people in, at Whitehall or whatever. And what I wish I had said was, and I, I wish I had drawn for him, Dorothy Sayers' Mind of the Maker diagram. And I was like, there is the idea of a policy. Like, what if we did blank? Think about this in the context of, like, the effort, which will be fascinating and critical to get the whole globe vaccinated against COVID in the next year and a half. The idea of the policy, the actually making it manifest, rolling it out, as we say in government speak. And then there is the policy as experienced by the people... Getting it, living in it, whatever that might be, and so I wished I had said to this man who really didn't like what I was saying, um, "Well, sir, I think listening is policy. But it's the it's that third component of listening to, as experienced by the people it was made with, through, and for. If you're in one, either of our two democracies."
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So that's how I kind of take Dorothy Sayers into oh, the secular realm. Um,
1: toward the end of your ambassadorship in the UK, you resigned after Donald Trump was elected. But toward the end, um, you attended a very um, what's the right word highfalutin dinner and had. Oh an right! Oh, thank you it.
2: for making me tell this, Michael. Yeah. Well,
1: it would. Yeah.
2: And by the way, I, I, there's. Um, I do, I do feel like um, there is one thing that Donald Trump has been accused of that is not fair. No. And i just going to take this moment to say it. No. That the tradition going back decades, Republican and Democrat, every political appointee like me is, regardless of political party, is asked to and expected and they know it going in to resign when the new person takes over. And there were a bunch of news stories out there that he cleaned everyone out. Now, he may have done lots of other things to career Foreign Service people. I'm not excusing that. But in the case of me, I knew exactly the day I would leave, you know, if, if the other political party won. And that was true. So I just want to set that straight. Um, uh, okay, so it was actually, it was a, this wonderful dinner with... with um, the official, wonderful people, leaders from government, military, uh, cultural leaders. And my wife, Brooke, and I were invited to come. And I had spent the day doing one of these workshops up in Scotland with young people. Um, And then I jetted down. I had to put on black tie, go to this dinner. Couldn't have been more gracious. And then, throughout, what, what I'm about to say. So then, at the beginning of the meal, we all sit down, and and I am asked by the host to give a tour of the horizon, which is sort of a diplomatic lingo for give the update on what America is up to in the world, right? And this is the sort of thing that ambassadors are expected to do at dinners like this. And I had done it many, 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 many times before. And my wife's sitting across the table from me, and she looks at me and she mouths, are you okay? But her expression is like, you don't look okay. And she was right. Like, I just felt terrible. And so like, I try to loosen my bow tie, which is a hard thing to do. And I'm like, I don't feel well. And so I was like, excuse me, sir, you know, just one second. So I kind of get up and I walk behind this long, long, long row of formal chairs to just try to go get some air. And there's like a little short stairway down to where I think I can get to the restroom. But at the top of the little staircase, I pass out and projectile vomit everywhere. And I don't know in what order that happened, but it doesn't really matter. And I wake up and my head is in the lap of Simon, the wonderful security guard. And I am, I mean, I should be mortified or whatever, but I found myself just strangely at peace. And it's more, you know, and, and the hosts are incredibly gracious and I get whisked off and my wife is worried. But I know, I was like, this is not a problem. I am not sick. It's not food poisoning. We hadn't even really eaten yet. It wasn't something scary and medical. This was, I was allergic to that tone of voice I was about to take, which is the often wrong, never in doubt tone of voice, you know, and and just pretending Mm -hmm. basically that I knew, I mean, I was about to talk about the civil war in Syria and about, you know, the transatlantic trade deal. This is all stuff that I quote knew about. I mean, I, this is what we did. So I knew enough, but it's just pretending. It's like pretending America has all the answers, pretending that I representing America have all the answers and that I'm going to give you a lecture about the way the world is now from our vantage point. And it just struck me as like the pyramid, which is this mindset that I can fake, but I don't like faking. And I just resolved after that embarrassing moment, I'm just not going to do that again. And it brings me to a question I was hoping, if I can, to ask you, which is a little weird, and I'll tell you why in a second I'm asking. And you're not the first person I've asked, and there's no right or wrong answer. But it's, how do you visualize time, Michael? And I'm going to ask you to use your hands, which I will try to describe to listeners. So, like, if I say you know, this sept- this coming September, we're, we're talking at the end of June. When I say this September, Michael, where is September visually, if you used your hands? Is it sort of out in front of you to the right? Where, where is September or a year from now,
1: June? Let me reflect for a moment. I'm going to tell you the truth. Yeah. At 77, if you haven't figured this out before... Uh, I think you have to be prepared to die at any moment Mm. and so September for me uh, I know it will be there for the world I hope Mm -hmm. it will be there for me Mm -hmm. Uh, I hope for I love life I hope for Mm -hmm. many more years of service but September is um, an unknown Mm. Um, and so not, I mean, I can use my hands, although my tremor becomes obvious when I use them. Okay. But, um, so I don't mind using them, but I would say, you know what I would say? I would say September is like this. Ooh. Okay. So arms expanded. It's neither past nor present. It is the movement of the great mystery. Uh, There is no, you know, classic, past is behind us, future is unknown, only the present is real, and it is a continuously moving present Mm. through which we move. Wow.
2: Okay. That That is very beautiful, and I wish everyone could see what I am seeing with your beautiful outstretched hands over your head. And the reason I ask, and I know we're running out of time, but... What I would start to do at these dinner parties where I didn't want to go give a fake a pretending lecture about American foreign policy is I would ask everyone to go counterclockwise and share how they visualize time. And which is a weird question, like no one's used to answering it, which is why I like it. So no one has a set thing that they're going to say that they've said a million times before. And you get, I've listened to, I've asked a thousand people this question and What's interesting without getting all, I remember my lovely wife, Brooke, at first was like, Darling, that is really stupid. And I said, Oh, thank you. Why do you think it's so stupid? And she's like, Because everyone pictures time exactly the same way. And I smiled. I was like, Oh, this is going to be fun. Well, darling, how do you visualize time? And she put her hand straight out in front of her in a straight line. She said, Life is a highway going directly away from me. And every month, you asked about September, every month is just an exit sign on the highway. So this September is three exits mm-hmm. away. And the September after that is, I can't see it, but it's 15 exits away. And I was like, okay, fascinating. I don't look at time like that. I look at time weirdly like a hockey rink that goes counterclockwise in a circle forever, which is weird. Strangely, my little brother has the exact same image and no one ever teaches you this, I don't think, right? So let's say I've asked a thousand people. I've heard like, you know, some people it goes up and down, it goes left to right, it goes like a clock. I mean, there's, for my mom, it's a clock with, you know, December is 12 and January is one o'clock and kind of makes some kind of sense. My point being, oh, an amazing guy, Teddy Abrams, who's head of our orchestra. I asked him and he's like, no no one's ever asked me. I was like, no, I know. That's why I'm asking you. And he said, time is like a slinky. And he's much younger than I am. And he says, do you know what a slinky is? I was like, yeah, I do. He's like, time's like a slinky. Sometimes in life, I'm just going around and not getting anywhere. Sometimes the slinky is stretched so i'm doing a circle but i'm corkscrewing and i'm going somewhere and i was like oh that's cool i wish i looked at time like that but my point michael was we carry these beginning where we or ending where we started with aristotle and uh angeles arianne and her conversation with you eight years ago the soul never thinks without an image and if that's true what is the images that we all have in our minds about ourselves and those around us and too often, I think it's this pyramid thing. And what if we could think about ourselves as stars and everyone else around us as stars? I think that could really help.
1: Mm, how beautiful. Well, Matthew Barzin, um, I am so grateful to spend this time with you. I, this
2: was so much fun, Michael.
1: I have to confess that I hope it's not our last conversation.
2: Oh, I know. Well, you make sure you make it till September. Come yeah. on and beyond. And I will make the same, uh, not that we are in control of these things, but uh, to the extent we are, I would love to keep this conversation going because...
1: So, Matthew, you are the, you are the author of a book that um, really has moved me and that I will give to people. It's called Thank The you. Power of Giving Away Power by Matthew Burson, uh, How the Best Leaders Learn to Let Go. And it really has in some very deep ways, catalyzed my own thinking about how I hope to work over the next few years. I, As I've said to you, I find it's so resonant with the way I think and work, but you've expanded my horizon of what that means and how to hold that. So I'm personally...
2: Thank you. I want to close with a tiny thing. I don't know if it'll make it into the broadcast, but I hope it does because yeah, yeah. when I first met you 25 years ago, my grandmother Winthrop that you mentioned at the outset, um, uh Eleanor, she um she said to me right before my mom, Sarita, drove us up to to Bolinas, and she said, um, now Matthew, do you understand you're about to go meet a genius? And mm-hmm. I say, because this is the MacArthur, you know, how it had all happened. And I said, oh, that's cool. Um, Yeah, great. Uh, And I did know that. And then I met you and your warm welcome and your humility and, of course, tons of wisdom and all that kind of accomplishment. And I thought, this is so cool. And I just remember that. I was like, I had preconceived ideas because of all this stuff on paper that you had achieved and all my grandmother had told you. And you were just as wonderful as you are today, open, curious, seeking beautiful person. And that was so inspiring to my 25-year-old self. So I want to thank you for being that then and being that every single day.
1: And what a joy to meet again in this way. So Until uh, next time.
0: Bless.
1: Till next time.
0: You've been listening to a TNS Conversation with Matthew Barzen and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams, and our theme music is by Jeremy Cohen. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.